Hello and welcome to the Glamptuary Podcast, where we talk about the experiential outdoor hospitality industry. I'm your host, Bobby Marsden. We're excited to speak with our guests on this episode who are both from a wonderful organization based in Chicago, Illinois called Sage Outdoor Advisory. Joining us on this episode are President Sherry Halala and Director of Outdoor Resorts, Connor Schwab. In this episode, we'll talk about how Sage Outdoor Advisory supports the experiential outdoor hospitality industry, about the services they provide, about how they help people that are thinking about getting a glamping operation get started, and also about how they help people who have existing operations enhance what they already have. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Connor. Thanks so much for joining the Glapshire podcast. Hi, Bobby. Thanks for having us. Well, the honor is all mine. And um, I say that heartfeltly because it's really refreshing to see in a growing business sector organizations that there, it seems like what their sole purpose is, is to really help other people get their dreams launched. And I, and I feel like glamping is such a emerging sector of business it's it's misunderstood people don't necessarily know what it is that's both you know from a consumer standpoint and sometimes from the experiential hospitality standpoint so it's great to see businesses like yourselves that are there to help clarify that uh, help get the word out and then help folks that are looking to potentially launch one of these types of businesses you know it's to help them get their their ship off the dock so i thank you guys for joining me today and i'm looking forward to talking more with you about what you do with the services you offer and, and the glamping industry as a whole, because there's a lot happening. And Connor, I was reading through uh, the glamping report that you put together, a very useful tool, and we'll have a link on the podcast uh, so people can see that. But there's some numbers uh, that I saw that were really, really awesome to see. 17 million households took a glamping trip in 2021. That's a lot but I bet there's a lot more that haven't taken that glamping trip yet. So that's exciting to know there's a lot of growth in place. And what you guys do is kind of help with these feasibility studies to help bring, I think, some clarity, not only for the people that want to start glamping businesses, but also for lenders or other institutions that are going to you know, help these businesses operate. So this is a great point, I think, for me to turn it over to you guys, uh, tell me a little bit about both your backgrounds, what got you interested in experiential hospitality, and then also what Sage does, what does Sage offer for people that are looking to to take a sometimes a new step in life? Sure. Well, um, I'm the president and founder of Sage Outdoor Advisory, and uh, I'm an appraiser by trade with a 30 plus year career in it. So I'm a, I'm a real numbers geek at heart. Um, so yeah, I worked in all kinds of segments of properties uh, and uh, probably 18 years ago, I appraised my first campground. And I would say it's the first time that uh, my work really kind of tied back to some of my best childhood memories. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin. We would take our boat and camp on the lake every summer. And if I if I try to pick one memory um, that I cherish the most, it was that one. So whenever another campground job came in, at the time I, I hadn't started my company, uh, I raised my hand because I loved it. Uh, I loved the property type. I loved being able to be outside. Um, and when I started my company 12 years ago, I looked for more opportunities to to grow on that background. And um, 
So we're doing a lot of that. And uh, I'd say the first project that came to my desk was in 2018. And it was a really big RV resort in Arizona. And, um, and they wanted to plan a lot of glamping and a, and a big variety of units. And that was, um, that was kind of the foray. I know it was fortunate to be there that early on in the US for glamping, at least. Um, so uh, it is, it's my passion. It's where I've invested all the resources in my company. And um, we can talk about what we do maybe after Connor introduces himself because we've got a good story there on how we met and how he joined the firm as well. Yeah. Thank you, Sherry. I, I, I grew up uh, in Portland, Oregon, kind of similar, lots of, lots of camping. I had three brothers and, and spent a lot of time uh, doing different camping trips. Uh, went down to California for school and went into the big corporate world in San Francisco and did the corporate thing for a while in the big city and uh, felt a big soul pull to get into the outdoor industry and start impacting that. And I had a chance to go to a really cool entrepreneurial MBA program in Austin, Texas. And that's uh, where I got to designate my thesis, which was in privatized camping and glamping. So that was 2018. So that was kind of my first foyer into the space and starting to look at different business models and the big players and trends that were happening in the industry. Um, Post-graduation, I had a chance to travel to Africa and kind of experience the, the birthplace of glamping out on the Serengeti. Um, and I ended up spending about four months traveling all over the continent, looking at different outdoor and experiential hospitality, doing you know, research and development for my own glamping business that I wanted to launch, uh, came back to the U.S. and did a similar road trip in the American West, checking out a lot of the major players out here. January 2020, I started my property hunt and a business partner and I found a piece near Bend, Oregon, where I live now. And we put an offer in and uh, the day we were supposed to sign on the dotted line, COVID reached the U.S. and then we couldn't come to terms anymore. Uh, and then there was, it was just kind of chaos amidst COVID for a while. And I went to the glamping show in Denver um, a little over a year and a half ago and had a chance to see Sherry. Uh, she was one of the keynote speakers of the glamping show, and she was giving a presentation on feasibility uh, studies for launching glamping businesses. And I was just super impressed by her and her knowledge and kind of her reputation and how well regarded Sage was in the space. Um, and so I had a chance to chat with Sherry after the show and told her about my my weird and unique skill set, and uh, she was like, "We can barely keep up with demand uh, on the outdoor side of things. Do you want to help us spearhead the growth?" And so I was like, "Wait, you're telling me I gotta, I just gotta work on all the coolest projects in the country?" She's like, "Yeah." <laughs> so uh, I put my my own uh, aspirations to open a business on hold to kind of help her and, and work with a bunch of different cool projects across the country, and it's uh, it's been a, a pretty meteoric year, and it's it's been a lot of fun. That's interesting, you know, that you, you bring up on the education side that you were able to specialize uh, with an MBA program into privatized camping. And I think you mentioned glamping. Did they actually have uh, a curriculum that was included, inclusive of glamping? No, it was it was self-selected. So it was all independent research. Okay. Yeah. Nevertheless, I think that's great. And obviously, in an educational forum, that's a wonderful way to be introducing this this. Uh, industry to young up-and-comers if you will which is sounds like a whole different podcast episode <laughs> so we'll save that for another time but uh in the space um sherry then you know it sounds like you obviously saw the opportunity the passion fueled you 
um, to want to create an offering. And so walk us through what Sage offers uh, on a service platform and then how you would be beneficial for, you know, people that are either looking to get into opening up a glamp site or a hospitality site or experiential hospitality, like what does Sage do? Absolutely. Um, we, you know, our, our main two services are feasibility studies and appraisals and um, uh, appraisals are, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, less, less of a big part of what we do for the glamping industry. We have been involved in a number of appraisals uh, that banks have required to get financing to expand or construct, but I'll, I'll focus on the feasibility side of it, um, which uh, is really where we uh, have put in the most resources and um, really feel that we can help the most. Uh, so feasibility study, we have two main main types of people that we've uh, worked with. So maybe somebody who has their concept down and they know exactly what they want to do and um, they need a study to either show to investors or to the bank and they need a third party expert to say, look, I know this is a good idea, but uh, but these people, Sage says it's a good idea too, and they've got the data and the expertise behind that, and can um, and can show that to those to those interested parties to help get the funding to to bring their dreams alive. The other group is um, people who don't maybe don't have as much experience in camping or outdoor resorts, um, and they're they know they have a great concept and a dream, but they're not really sure how to go about it, and. Um, and we will help them analyze the market or potential sites and uh, give them advice to bring them to a point where we can uh, recommend what type of offering we think would work in this location and what the seasonality would be and, um, and really help show them the steps to bring that, that great idea and that lifelong dream um, to fruition. And um, so really it's a... Uh, it's an in-depth look at the market, what the demand generators are, what the growth is in the market, population access, um, how people can travel there, and uh, and then a look at the competition. What's the competitive environment? What's there now? What might be coming? Um, putting that into a revenue projection and uh, then an expense projection, cost estimates, and rolling that into metrics that banks and investors will look at to see if this is if this is a, a good and viable project that's kind of it in a nutshell and one of the things that connor's brought to the table you talked about our our glamping report and the data initiatives that's one of the hugest gaps in in uh bringing some of these dreams into reality is educating people who want to invest or people that want to finance and actually having real data to base these decisions on. So we've invested a lot of time and, and effort into building uh, these databases, which we are continuing to, to grow in terms of scope and geography. Um, and that's one of the, the greatest things that Connor's achieved so far, but we expect way more huge things. <laughs> <laughs> Connor, what kinds of things, if I were given access or able to access the the data points, like what 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 are some important things that I would see right away, and and what are some other things that you would want to highlight that I should be looking for if if I'm a newcomer to this industry? Yeah, so there's kind of two lens. One one is from you know if you're if you're looking to to launch your own glamping business, um, 
you know, each, each, each site and location is, is so unique, particularly like with the weather and seasonality and what unit type um, you're going to use. But one thing that, a couple things that we see in common, um, we, we were tracking a lot of different metrics. Like, do we notice a difference in rates for sites that are, um, you know, near water features or next to a major city or next to a national park? or whether the units had private bathrooms or shared bathrooms, or was there, you know, full food and beverage and dining service available on the property. And uh, also we tracked unit capacity, like how many guests could stay in a unit. And we wanted to see if there was any strong correlation um, between those. And we noticed some pretty surprising things. And, and that was that the data was relatively inconclusive for when we were tracking against um, what was the, the guest capacity in the unit? We didn't see a clear correlation with the bigger, the, the more guests you can host, the higher the rates. We didn't see that. And we even tracked, you know, is there uh, a body of water on the property or nearby? And surprisingly, we didn't see a huge correlation with that either. Uh, and then the, the third thing was distance or proximity to a major city. And again, we actually didn't see a super strong correlation with that, but where we did see a very, very clear spike in rates was units that have a private bathroom uh, where, you know, and, and fundamentally it is, it's, if a guest is staying in the wilderness or in, in a wild place or on a larger property, they, they don't want to leave the comforts of their tents to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and have to get mm -hmm. dressed or get a flashlight or stumble through the dark. Um, and so we noticed that um, holding all other variables aside, on average, unit, glamping units that had a private bathroom were earning about 70% more. Uh, and then also for um, properties that had full food and beverage service, which means that guests can get three prepared meals a day on site. Um, we noticed uh, those, those units on those properties were getting twice as much as properties that didn't have any food and beverage service. And there's an important caveat that typically, you know, a site that has full food and beverage service will also have other high quality amenities. So it's not saying like, oh, if you have food and bev, you're immediately going to double your rates, but it is, uh, the, the, the correlation is so high that it's hard to ignore. And, and I think that makes sense, right? Because most glamping sites are in a pretty remote location. There's not a lot of great food options around or grocery stores. And, and what glamping allows guests to do is all you need, when you go on an RV trip or a camping trip, like you need to bring equipment or sleeping bags or an RV. Um, but when you're going glamping, it allows a guest to fly into a location across the country to go say, visit a national park. And all they're bringing is their suitcase and a basic rental car. Um, and if you're going on a two or three day trip, you don't want to have to worry about getting groceries or finding a restaurant to eat, especially in a remote location. So just having that available on site is a huge value add to your guests. Yeah, I would completely agree. Uh, having experienced all different facets, uh, some would be just a slight step above uh, primitive camping. It might be a tent with a bed in it, uh, all the way up to all three meals served, bathroom right inside the same structure. My wife would definitely agree with you that she wants the bathroom right there. And when it's 30 degrees outside, I would also agree. Uh, I'd like to just stay in the same structure. Uh, or if there's wildlife around, you know, you don't know what's walking around at night. So. <laughs> um, I think the food and the bathrooms are a big component. And one other thing I've, I've noticed uh, when people travel in is they're also unfamiliar with the surrounding area. So if they are looking for something to do, um, 
outside of their glamping structure and a fire pit and, and some of the things you'd expect. I've noticed that sites also are starting to offer a lot of experiences tied into their property. So people also have the convenience of not having to go outside the property to find something to do or do the additional research to see what's happening. Have you noticed um, that also be a spike in price or maybe even just it creates an a la carte menu uh, where people can start to choose their, their adventure and if there's costs and profits that could be associated to that. What are your thoughts on, on the experience side? It really varies. And some of it is driven by what the owners, you know, what their strengths are and what they want to offer. So um, I do think, you know, we haven't gotten as much into some of the all like truly all inclusive resorts because there are um, on the higher end, there's not very many of them. Um, but I do think that uh, I think that offering those experiences, whether it's run by the owners of the resort or you're partnering with someone who will, you know, pick you up and take you on the horse on the trails is absolutely um, going to support higher rates. And if it doesn't support, you know, it in a significant way, it's definitely going to support higher occupancy um, because, yeah, there's a lot of people that want to go glamp and um, maybe they don't realize it till they get there that they just want to be still and it's okay that they didn't plan anything. But I think that um, people that are new to it, when they're looking on the website, they're thinking, well, what am I going to do all day? You know, and the ones that have more options to offer, especially if they're remote and it's like, well, you can take yoga lessons or someone can teach you how to meditate or do an artist workshop or, you know, there's live acoustic music at night. That's, that's going to entice people, make them willing to pay more and get more people to come. I think the reality is, is that you get there and you're just so happy to be disconnected and you just want to stare at the stars and maybe you write in your journal and, and do those kind of things. But, um, but I think that's more for somebody who's done it a lot more and, and you're still going to, you know, if you have a three-day stay, you're still going to want to maybe do something. <laughs> um, so I, I do think it's it's an important part for sure, for sure. Unless you're right outside a national park and everything you're going to do is, you know, that's just your overnight accommodations and, and, and all of that is, is built in. But. Yeah, and I, I think I would add to that. It's from a, from a data perspective, it's hard to measure or compare experiences because most sites offer something. So how do you like quantify that? So it's hard to measure, but from our, our personal experience and like there's, there's two, tr two trends in hospitality that are exploding. And that is outdoor hospitality, people wanting to disconnect and be outside and, and experiential hospitality. And that, that is to experience something really unique. And I think for your listeners, you know, what is the story of your property uh, and how does that tie into the experience? And it could be the story of you as the owner. It could be the story of the land that you're on, the story of the town or the area you're in and the history. And, and how can, you know, hospitality is good storytelling and connecting people to that experience. And so maybe you have Scandinavian heritage and like love Finnish saunas. And so you want to have, you know, Scandinavian inspired architecture with, you know, a cold plunge and sauna experience. And like, how do you, how do you engage your guests with that and connect them? So they're, they're coming into this cultural and uh, this cultural experience 
And then they're going to be so much more excited about that and likely to book again, as well as, you know, tell family and friends that they've got to go check this thing out. Yeah, that's a really good point, Connor, too, because one of the things that we tell our clients is um, as glamping grows and the competitive landscape grows, you need to think about what's unique about your property. Um, You can't, it's not a long-term success solution just to put tents up on a ridge somewhere. Um, There needs to be something unique, you know, whether it be in your structures or your background or the experience you offer or the, you know, the change in perspective that you give people that are there. Um, I I think that um, it will become that, that, that unique experience and aesthetic will become more and more important as the years go on in glamping. I agree. Yeah. And it was interesting. I was reading something online and, and there was a study that kind of broke things down into six different types of travelers. You know, who knows? There's probably a million, <laughs> but they, they, they put it in six categories. One was called simplicity searchers. Um, they're just, you know, looking to have kind of everything given to them without putting much work in to figure out how and why. Uh, they cultural purists. Connie mentioned that about, you know, someone getting involved in the, in the culture and, and there's a lot of reward to that. Uh, social capital seekers. Um, people looking for Instagrammable <laughs> moments. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. I haven't heard that term. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which there's, there's certainly something, you know, there's a whole business built around it as, as, as travel grammars and things like that. And, I'm, and I do support that. And I think it's great. It gives exposure to these properties. But uh, those Instagrammable moments, which I think some of them are naturally just baked in. Um, there's reward hunters, you know, they're looking to treat themselves. They've saved up all year for their one big thing. So they want to make sure whatever they're going to do is, is going to pay off the obligation meters. Um, you know, they feel like they have to take their family on the trip every year. So they have to sometimes switch it up and ethical travelers. And, and this is where ecotourism is, is coming in uh, big. Yeah. I see. Um, and, and a lot of the glamp site owners that I've spoken with on the podcast are just when I visited their properties, uh, it, it usually was an evolution and how they got to the point where they were able to offer cultural educational tours or activities on site. Like they had to get something started to start their business. What are your thoughts on kind of the methodical process of, of the planning stages to, to launching with something and then Sherry, to your point, having a growth mindset where, okay, in year one, I'm going to do this, but in year two, I plan to do this. In year three, I plan to do this because being able to try and do it all at once actually could be a cause for implosion if you're just not able to sustain it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really relevant question. And I love your breakdown of the traveler types, by the way. Um, to- <laughs> wasn't Wasn't mine, but it was something I saw online. A lot of them were focused on glamping yeah. or you know experiential outdoor hospitality which is really fun for me to see that wow every single one of these categories fits right into absolutely now we we definitely believe strongly in proof of concept and especially in an environment where securing capital for your full dream is difficult so um you know getting a lender or investor to come on board and um, and say they're going to fund, you know, 50 glamping units that cost 80 grand each. Um, that's a big, big ask. So, um, you know, and, and even on a smaller scale, it can be a big ask if you don't have a background in, in it. So um, being able to come up with a kind of a, a minimum viable concept, 
not only to prove to the people that you're seeking um, expansion capital from, but for yourself, um, you know, see how this goes. Are, are the target customers really the ones that you had in mind? Is that who's showing up? What um, maybe you have a couple different unit types that you'd been considering and you see which ones are most popular, um, how your rates really perform to the projections. Uh, you know, I think that often we look at a lot of projects that have, you know, up to three phases. Um, and the great thing about starting smaller is that you can reevaluate your plan as you go. Now, minimum viable product can be hard, though, because if you've got to build in central amenities and you're somewhere where you don't need where where there's not really food and beverage options you really need to make that investment or find a way to outsource some of that stuff which is a good solution too um but but yeah it's uh there are some big players who can kind of go all in and and that can make sense for the right location but more often than not uh, a phased proof of concept approach is I think really the smartest. What do you think, Connor? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm guessing that most of your listeners are, you know, the entrepreneurs might be bootstrapping this probably don't have, you know, millions of dollars sitting around. And I could say probably two of our, our favorite clients, Walden retreats in Austin, Texas, and actually Blake Smith went to my MBA program and was a, a big mentor for me. Um, but he's running a phenomenal business. Um, out of Austin, and then uh, Bignall Dutson at Open Sky, who's also running an amazing glamping concept outside of Zion. And they both started with two or three units on their property. Their phase one was just two or three units, and they were super high quality, um, really, really like nailed those first two, three units. And then once they had uh, a year or two of, of operating history under their belt, showing strong revenue and, and rates and occupancy. Then they, you know, when they got an appraisal through Sherry and then uh, applied for construction loads for their expansions and expanded up to 10, 12 units. And then they started adding on-site dining and an events venue and a pool and more programming. And, um, you know, early on getting, you know, three to $400 a night. And now those rates are, you know, five to $800 a night. And, um, and that's just a really good example of, of a way that you can bootstrap it and kind of mitigate your risk and start and nail the first concept and then prove that. And then it's going to be way easier to raise bank lending or, or private investment. Yeah. And it's, it's, we live in a society now where we're so expecting of everything right now because there's so many things at our fingertips that what I'm hearing from you and what I've heard from others and I agree with is that you really need to have a long-term vision in place and also the patience and tolerance uh, to move through that methodically. And Sherry, to your point, you, you, I think it's also, it is a test of, you know, there's, there's a dream and, and maybe that might not make sense. And so maybe start smaller, see how you feel about it. And then again, just take the time to grow as you see fit. And also be able to react uh, to how the world's changing. You know, Connor, you mentioned that when you, you know, got into this, you know, there was a dream and then COVID hit and you were able to pivot and change. And so I think the same is probably true for people that are with past COVID. We're still up and operating, but we're trying to see what's trending or what's popular or what new structure got invented just to have the flexibility um, and open-mindedness to have a plan, but then make a shift if if you want to do you as sage uh tend to 
stick with your clients. So the feasibility studies and a lot of things that happen up front are kind of to get people up and running, but then are there options for people say they have a glamp site up and running and they might've used you to help get started and three, four years down the road, they're like, oh, okay, so we're ready to grow. Can you guys help us uh, strategize on some of that? Yeah. They've become some of my very good friends as a matter of fact. So going back to 2018, um, I, I have quite a few that we continue to talk, whether it's about, you know, um, their current uh, project that we started with or another one, or they're partnering with someone else on, on something else. So, um, you know, we're, we try to stay in our lanes as, as, you know, feasibility consultants and market market study consultants. Um, but we have learned a lot in the industry. Um, we make a very strong effort to connect our clients to other professionals in the industry that can help them through other parts of, you know, development, management, design, et cetera. And, um, but, uh, and we also make a point to, to do our best to follow up and see how things are going because um, we always want to learn from what their experiences are as well. And did things turn out the way that, that we thought they would and what went well, what went wrong. Um, but it's all sounds like, you know, a number of years have passed since it started, but it's going super fast. So um, it's all still very new. We have quite a few clients that are still in their, you know, startup phases that uh, we'll, we'll know more once they've gotten further along, but yeah, it's, uh, mm -hmm. um, calls on Saturdays and Sundays because we've all become friends. <laughs> so, but that is what I love about this industry. It is amazing. Good people. Um, I continue to be floored by, by all the wonderful people that I've met. So. Yeah. And, and I could add to that. Um, we, we, having like an open communication with our past clients and, and checking in with them. Like some of them have, have reached out to us multiple times for study revisions or for a phase three expansion. And so um, that definitely happens, but then there's an awesome kind of free learning exchange that happens with our clients where they call us and give us the updates on their business, things that are going really well, things that aren't going as well as they planned. Um, I think actually to like open sky and Walden retreats, like in the past month, I sent them both like an SEO consultant that we're working with at Sage, as well as um, a new food service business that is bringing like high quality food options to, you know, remote high scale resorts. Um, so like sending contacts to them, be like, Hey, this might be able to help with your next uh, growth stage. Uh, and then we can check in with them and find out like, Hey, how's, how's the events venue going? Like, is it getting as much revenue as we expected? Is the demand there? And we get a really important feedback loop from like, what is happening boots on the ground in the market? Yeah. I think that that follow-up and I'm so glad to hear that you do that is, is so important because it provides hope, you know, for someone that has that long-term vision, like, you know, is anybody else doing this? What's going on with them? And it's a confidence boost when you get to find out that people have tried it and they're realizing successes or they're ran the challenges that forced them to go a different direction, but they were able to overcome it, uh, especially with some support services like Sage and Connor, you know, getting outside of the U S you mentioned the Serengeti, you know, uh, it sounds like you've been to some pretty fantastic places. So what would be some of your favorite places that you visited uh, globally? And, and why? And then the second part of that question would be is, how do you see the U.S. Uh, compared to the rest of the 
the globe when it comes to glamping? Um, yeah, well, fun question. There, one of my favorites was uh, this uh, Namibian desert glamping that was up. Uh, it was up in the hills of the Namibian desert, and it looked out. So it was these really cool tents. Uh, kind of scattered about this hillside and then they just looked out over the sweeping desert near like the saucy flight dunes and that was a really special one uh, that not many people have heard about and um, there was I got to see these Rwandan bungalows being built on this like rainforest hillside that looked out over Lake Kivu in the DRC um, which was really special and then in the U.S. probably one of the coolest site visits uh, I got to do this last year was to go see Open Sky, which is which is right outside Zion. It's just like an unbelievable Horseshoe Canyon property. And if you walk up to the, the Rim Rock edge, you can see all the giant monoliths like within Zion. It's just stunning. Uh, as, as far as the U.S. market compared to the rest of the world, we definitely got a late start compared to um, Africa. And... Uh, but we are making up speed quickly. I think the you know COVID drastically expedited the the, the pace of um, outdoor hospitality's growth. And what we've seen in speaking with a lot of our clients is we've gotten a lot of interest from you know people that were in the hotel or other asset classes of real estate that are a bit more institutional um, that are reaching out to us and and getting you know asking us for advice about getting into the space. And I think. There's a lot of hesitancy, especially with like recession uh, worries that, you know, tr traditional things like hotels or multifamily or even offices, you know, people that were in these other asset classes are like, okay, where can we put our money that seems like a safe bet? And I think outdoor hospitality is becoming more and more of a, a viable option. And I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. So I think, you know, all growth, like a rising tide lifts all boats, both for the the entrepreneurs as well as the um you know uh, larger players getting into the space yeah i it, read a few studies and it always kind of shifts a little bit but one said the by 2030 they anticipate 5.94 billion dollars to be spent uh, in the glamping sector which seems like a big number <clears throat> and then you look at how much money is spent in travel which was which would projected be 1.13 trillion and then you realize, wow, like glamping is actually a very small percentage. I actually look at that as exciting, though, because there's so much ground to gain. And and I think part of that's raising awareness, um, both not only for the consumer, but also for things like financial institutions that can help bring some of these dreams to reality. And your feasibility studies obviously do a lot of that work. What's been your take uh as far as how financial institutions are responding to these requests? And also, is there a certain type of loan that seems to be working better than another? That's a good question. So uh, there are a few banks that are specializing in outdoor resort segment, thank goodness. And they've made, you know, they've established groups that specialize in outdoor resort lending. And those groups have done a really good job uh, educating themselves on the industry. Uh, we were recently invited to one of those banks to speak to their executive staff on our views of uh, both glamping and RV resorts, um, just to help give them some insight and really truly understand it better. And it's really encouraging to see that there are banks doing that and that have a desire to be educated about it rather than 
just not understanding it and, and saying no. Um, but uh, I think that there's still kind of few and far between um, is the hard part. And I also think that, um, you know, there's not, we're lucky there's not a lot of appraisers that do what we do. But because some of these banks are hiring appraisers that don't have a lot of experience in it, unfortunately, we're hearing of, you know, some deals that aren't going through um, because, you know, projects that we thought were really solid, somebody else did the appraisal on and just, uh, you know, I think it was just a lack of true understanding uh, of the product type and how to compare it properly to others. So um, it's going to get better and it is getting better. Um but it's hard to it's hard to sometimes educate your local bank or even you've got a national bank and a lender you like working with, but they haven't done anything in the space and it gets difficult. So um, but people who have strong community banking relationships, um, a lot of times those smaller banks that want the investment in their community and believe in it, um, they will go out of their way to understand it and talk to their higher ups and make it happen. Yeah. And, and to add on that, you know. <laughs> probably nine out of 10 uh, loan officers or, or banks that you approach about lending against a glamping project are, might have no idea what you're talking about and will have never written up a loan for an asset class, even remotely resembling that. Um, so there's a lot of education that still needs to happen. And that's, that's a, that's probably the biggest thing that, that we're working on. And I think, you know, you were mentioning the why at, at the beginning of the show and like, you know, why it is that we do what we do and like, our, our goal or my personal mission, as well as kind of the mission of Sage is to get as many people outside and having a really authentic experience connecting with nature and loved ones and themselves as we can. We don't do that directly. <laughs> we, we help other people do that. Um, and so we're, what, there's so little data available and there's even terms and definitions is something that is kind of poorly, uh, poorly understood, but we've been working really closely with KOA with the glamping report um, and other reports that we're basically looking to publish and make available kind of as much data and clarification that is substantiating this market and legitimate, like legitimizing it so that that's publicly available. So people who are you know working on launching their products, they can, they can reference these things and take them to the bank or to lenders and say, Hey, these are what that, this is what the average glamping business is making in the U S or in my state, you know, this is what they're making for this unit type with these types of bathrooms. And we're trying to, uh, we're trying to kind of make that available to elevate the whole industry and pave the way for more financing, uh, whether through private investors or banks, uh, like pave the way for more glamping operators and owners to get that investment. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, it's also the reason why I do this podcast and, and, and write the blog. It's it's to raise awareness because I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's just, it's so new. And and it, and it from a bank's perspective, you know, they're all about risk. Yeah. And so <laughs> if, it's, if it's not even an understood word yet, it's kind of hard to write a loan against it. But I think that education is, is crucial. Um, are there any other things you think that could be happening in the glamping industry that maybe could be helping connect uh, glamp site owners? Because it's a very supportive network area, as you said. You know, it, yes, they're competitors, but quite frankly, at this point, I think they're all supporters because they really just want everybody to, to succeed 
because everybody else's success, Connor, to your point, you know, the tide rises, all the ships rise as well. What isn't out there? Have you ever thought about what it'd be nice if we had this, because this would really help us do this. Well, I think, and I think this is forming, but investment groups that specialize in this industry, um, we know a few people that are either doing it or, or, or putting it together. Um, I think that, uh, I think that that's going to help. And that's, you know, private capital. It's not just some random private capital group that invests in all things, but, you know, they're looking at outdoor hospitality specifically. And the more that that continues to happen, the more opportunities will be available. I think one of the things that we try to do ad hoc that we're, we're trying to put a little more, um, kind of organization around is just connect being a connector. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're busy writing feasibility studies, so it's not our main mission, but we found ourselves in that position of, wait, we know somebody who has land and they want to do glamping, but they don't want to operate it. Um, and, but we know some people who have a dream to operate it and unique skills to do that. And we actually know somebody who doesn't really want to do much, but they do want to put their money there and really, you know, um, so all that's happening very ad hoc in the industry now. And I think um, and I think podcasts like these and other industry forums like the American Glamping Association, they help connect people. But sometimes it's just kind of the luck of, you know, well, I talked to this person last week and someone brought up this need this week. And, and uh, that's one of the things that Connor's great at is, is, you know, finding those fits between people. But the more that that can be focused on and formalized, I think um, it's going to help everyone in the industry for sure. Glamping is, I've heard a couple uh, owners or people chatting with us about saturation in the market and we're, no, nowhere near market saturation. Um, and I've chatted with a couple glamping owners who were telling us about the experience that they wanted to run on their property. And they were like, Hey, we, we're going to need to have you sign an NDA before we tell you about the experiences that we're going to offer on our property. And I was like, I was like, you're going to make a website, right? That's going to be public <laughs> information. Um, and I was like, listen, like start looking at other glamping businesses as your friends and as people that can help you and you can share information and tips and trips, like the chances of you pulling from the same customer base, even if you're, you know, 10 minutes away from each other is so low. The, the, the amount of glamping accommodation available compared to traditional hotel or, or camping sites, it's like 1% of 1% of 1%. It's, it's such a small amount. Um, so I would just encourage your listeners to like, if there's another operator in your space or even in another state, like reach out to them and, and befriend them and like pop the hood and talk about what you're struggling with and what's going well. Cause you have a lot more to gain, uh, from helping people. And, and I think most people have that attitude. Yeah. I think that's, what's so fun and special about this, this industry is that people are willing to help each other. There's not a lot of like secrecy or trying to edge people out. Um, so I would just encourage people to keep doing that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think most of them do feel that. And, and you know, running a, sometimes running a ranch, running a glamping outfit, you know, there's only so much time in the day. And so I feel like if there's more opportunities that create access points uh, for people with, with the minimal amount of barriers, um, I think that that communication will definitely be on the uptick. Um, so when you guys aren't working, you're hopefully taking a vacation at some point. Um, 
Sherry, I'll start with you. Like, well, what, what's, what's your dream vacation? Where have you not been that, that you are <laughs> dying to go to at some point? I actually, I'll just tell you where I just went. How's that sound? Cause I'm still, still uh, reminiscing about that. Um, so I went to Aruba for the first time for my 25th wedding anniversary and um, congratulations. And I, uh, I, I call myself an aging action sports junkie. <laughs> aging being the key word because I can't necessarily do everything that uh that I've wanted to do in the past but um Aruba has no glamping by the way and it is prime for it uh, because I looked anywhere I go um I try to try to experience as many as I can but um the blue waters were amazing so there was snorkeling sailing quiet beach time dinners on the beach ATVing cave pool jumping and I made Connor proud because I took a kite surfing lesson. He's a big kite surfer. Um, learning how to move that kite's a lot harder than I thought. So I'm going to need more lessons. But um, yeah, so, but I, I love it all. I love the ocean. I love the mountains. I, I live on a lake. Um, I want to experience it all. And, um, and I do have to remind myself that doing nothing is a good thing too. I think we all need to remind ourselves of that. So I tried to fit a lot of that in as well. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Connor, what about you? Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, I, I had a chance to do snowshoe out to some years uh, on Polina Lake and Bend, and we'd just gotten like two feet of snow. And it was a really simple, like basic year, but there was only two around there and there was like nobody there. So like winter glamping is a very hard thing to pull off, um, but we got to do that and experience it. And it was, it was really a magical a magical uh a glamping experience and of like what's what's left or what's coming up um um probably like my favorite place in the world i don't know there's a lot but um i really love norway and the, the fjords up there and so if i could find some some glamping in norway overlooking the the fjords that would be pretty high on the list i would say yeah, there was a show on Apple. Uh, Eugene Levy is is hosting it called The Reluctant Traveler, and I believe they went yes. far away. Um, yeah, and stayed in some glamping units. Glamping units. So that even that term in and of itself is really kind of not defined. Um, I tried to do it on the website, and, and but there's certainly a lot of structures like RVs, for instance. Like, is it glamping? Is it not? But I feel like if it's getting people outside and and they're disconnecting from their day to day stresses and finding new ways to connect with each other, it's it's good all around, whatever kind of structure. There's Absolutely. Like. How about yeah. you, Bobby? The last great, well, every trip I take is great, but the last place I would say that was just mind blowing was Iceland. Mm. And it's just because it felt like you're on a different planet. And some of those places, um, so scenic, definitely a challenging environment to, I think, be in for the long haul. But I also think that that fuels what the Icelanders were telling me is their dark humor, because you have to have it to get through <laughs> some of the winters there. Uh, I'm originally from Minnesota, so I'm well-versed uh, in the cold. Uh, my wife, however, uh, enjoys very warm weather. So wherever, whenever I mix in a colder vacation, I always have to offset it the next time with a, with a warmer location. So I think the next one we're looking at is Greece. Haven't been, uh, again, beautiful architecture, but by the ocean uh, and so much rich history. Uh, and, and I love the opportunity to learn culture. 
I, I love to learn about not only the structures I'm around and what I'm doing, but how did this all happen thousands of years ago? So anything I can ever do to immerse myself in that is a place I definitely want to visit, which is anywhere yeah. on the planet. So everything's open. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Connor and Sherry, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I uh, love what you're doing. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to watching Sage Evolve, uh, hopefully partnering with you down the road when it's time to maybe open my own glamptuary. Um, but keep doing what you're doing um, and looking forward to staying in touch with you. We're honored to be, uh, to be here. And thanks for the opportunity, Bobby. Yeah, we, we love it. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. You're helping the people. So thanks, Bobby. Yeah, we appreciate the chance to, to be on here with you. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us on this episode, and I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation that I had with Sherry and Connor. They're a wealth of knowledge. They're passionate about the experiential outdoor hospitality industry, and they're in a great position to help those that are thinking about getting started or those that have been doing it for a while and are thinking about expanding and building their current business. If you'd like to reach out to them, you can do so via their website, which is www.sageoutdooradvisory.com. That is www.sageoutdooradvisory.com. And if you'd like to follow us, you can do so on our website, which is www.glamptuary.com. Again, that is www.glamptuary.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you down the trail.